You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. We are so excited to have Dr. Billy Smith with us today. Until very recently, Dr. Smith was a professor in the Department of History and Philosophy at Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana, and he has just recently retired. At MSU, Dr. Smith has been distinguished as both the Michael P. Malone Professor of History and a Distinguished Professor of Letters and Sciences. Not only has he contributed to numerous scholarly volumes and journals, but Dr. Smith has also published nine books. His most recent book is Ship of Death, The Voyage That Changed the Atlantic World. And that's a book that relates very much to the subject of our uh, podcast today. He is also the recipient of numerous awards, including the Norris and Carol Hundley Award for the Most Distinguished Book by a Historian Living in the West, the Cox Award in Teaching and Research, the Wiley Award for Outstanding Research, and the James and Mary Ross Provosts Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Teaching. Welcome, Billy. Thank you. Dr. Smith, I should say, but we'll call you Billy. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you're here today um, because, of course, you were a professor of mine many, many moons ago. And Uh, mine not so long ago. Yes, yes. And um, both Nancy and I have enjoyed your classes over this time. And, of course, you really brought me to a better understanding and love of historic death and dying and disease and <laughs> pandemics and all those sorts of things. And, of course, um, you, always, you also brought me to my love of historical activism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, that's a big part of the Extreme History Project. So, so yes. thank you. So we're excited you're, you're here with us today. So you're here with us to talk about your research on mapping inequality featuring the story of Martha Washington, our very first First Lady, and Ona Judge. And is her name pronounced Ona or Oni? Oni was uh, the child name, so uh, I think Ona Ona. is what we want to call her in a respectful sense. Wonderful. So Ona Judge, a woman who was enslaved and labored for our first First Lady, Martha Washington. Can you start off by giving us just a brief synopsis of this project? Uh, the, the current project basically is what I'm trying to do is uh, measure, uh, talk about inequalities in early America in the 1790s, a reflection of the same kind of thing that uh, you just said that your project does here to make history relevant, to see if we can learn from history, see what insights we can get from history. So I was approaching it in this sense of inequalities how, because we know how unequal our own era is right now. So in terms of race, class, gender, and then disease became another factor and especially fitting in with the current virus. And there is a disease in the 1790s as well that gives us a lot of parallels. So I was interested in inequalities. I was interested in how can I understand how these inequalities get reflected in individual people's lives uh, and the way in which they understand the world. Thus I took Martha Washington, a slave owner all her entire life, uh, and own a judge who had been enslaved by Martha Washington, uh, and uh, how would they see the city of Philadelphia differently just on a normal day of walking down the street together? No, I should put that differently. Martha would ride in a carriage, Ona would be required to walk. That's the first kind of idea of how is this going to be a different experience, and that's how it would start off. Okay, so let's delve into that a little bit. As a historian, um, this may be a bit of a departure to the kind of work you usually produce. So tell us why you decided to create 
sort of a virtual walking tour of Philadelphia in 1793. You've combined ArcGIS, which is a mapping tool with historical data, to better understand what that hypothetical walk or carriage ride with Walker behind it yes. would have been like for Martha and Ona in the late 18th century. Um, and what new perspectives did you gain? What did you hope your audience or public might gain from this type of approach? Um, well, to back up quickly, in many ways, it's a reflection of my entire career because I started history as a graduate student in the 1960s, was very politically active, influenced by that, and that's where I thought my history should go. So I've always been interested in non-elites, uh, whether they're women or whether they're black people or whether they're Native Americans, uh, whether they're working class white people, which is the first book that I wrote about uh, during the revolution. So in many ways, this is uh, I've been carrying through similar themes through almost all of my books, writings, research, talks. Um, and uh, what I have not done previously that I'm doing now is trying to personalize this in two individuals. Uh, before, I would talk about a whole class of working class white men, for example, because you didn't have too many individuals that you could talk about in any detail. But I did realize that we could, I could, for myself, see the streets of Philadelphia, see 18th century differently by looking through both of their eyes because we have a great deal of information clearly about Martha Washington, but uh, because of Erica Dunbar's recent book about Ona Judge, we have a great deal of information about her too. So I was thinking, okay, here are two individuals. We have more information about this runaway slave than probably anybody else, except maybe for Frederick Douglass. So how can I use that uh, and put this together to really to understand the world for myself? That's what I keep trying to do both then and now. Hmm. Right, right. Yes. And of course, at Extreme History, um, our goal is to do very things that are very similar to that. And we research, interpret, and educate about stories, personal stories often too, that, that yes. have been untold. And oftentimes those stories are purposefully un not told. So your work, as you like to say, um, literally puts people back on the map. So can you talk a little bit about that? But also talk a little bit about your process. And I love that you're talking about these personal stories. And, of course, like you said, Martha's easy. Right, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but Ona Judge was not not as easy. Um, no. Because of Dunbar's work, it was a little easier. But, um, right. but ha what, you know, what resources and records and, you know, where did you have to dig to get this some of this information? Because for you, the what you're writing about is not just Martha and Ona. You're writing about all of these other individuals that you were able to locate in that physical space of yes. these streets of Philadelphia. And that really helps us see what they would have seen or not seen, as you say. Yes. Um, yeah. So so again, how do you how do you get at that information and why does it matter? Yeah. The two things I guess I would talk about a little bit is because I have worked on material like this for such a long time. I have a lot of stuff already yeah. to draw on and to find that I've uncovered in the past. Uh, and so that's great. The other thing, though, that was really important was I was able to... Uh, uh, get a team of uh, scholars together uh, to work on this mapping project for about three years, actually. So uh, there was uh, another historian, Paul Sibbets, who was also a PhD candidate of mine. Uh, there was Stuart Challenger, who taught GIS here. Fortunately, mm -hmm. he was willing to come onto the project. And we enlisted a lot of students, too, graduates and undergraduate students alike, uh, to dig in these records. So this is not the kind of project regardless of whether I had a lot of material before or not. But this is not the kind of a project that a single person did or could do. It just takes too long. So I would say for three years, pretty steadily, half dozen of us uh, worked on this in, in various sources. Some of the kind of things we used uh, were uh, newspapers. All the newspapers are now online. So that's great. You can that's do huge. keywords, yes, in a way that I never could have done this 10 years To be ago. able to search them yes. electronically. Search them electronically, search for neighborhoods, search for names, all these kinds of things, and find stories in newspapers about them in a way you couldn't for, uh, uh, for common people previous to that. But the other thing that Philadelphia has in the 1790s 
It's the first uh, U.S. capital, and so they keep great records on it throughout the 1790s. They're building Washington, D.C., and so first capital, 1790 to 1800s, Philadelphia. So a very important city. But it's got censuses, 1790 and 1800. It's got some state censuses. It's got city directories, which is like a phone book without a telephone number, but it tells occupation, name, address, things of that sort. So there's lots and lots of records that one can draw on tax lists, which we did. Uh, and one of the reasons it took us three three years of tax pretty concentrated the, work. Wow. Yes, because you can do tax lists, wealth inequality. Right. And again, trying to get a class and how unequal is this society and is it changing, which directions, things of that sort. So I'd say half dozen different, very thorough records. As far as I know, I, I don't know any other city at the time uh, in the Western world, uh, in Europe or anything like that, that has this kind of set of records. So I feel very privileged to uh, have been able to work on this. Yeah, because you were able to trace some women who, once their husband passed away, yes. you could see how their household changed. They fell into poverty. They had to take in borders and washing and then didn't live much longer. You you were really yes. able to piece together different points in yes. someone's life who otherwise would have been lost to Absolutely. history. Uh, and again, that, that's just from uh, searching through all these records, doing a city direct research for 10 different years to see how does this house change. Uh, and, you know, if all of a sudden it's a widow, previous year it's, you know, she, she's married to somebody, then you can track her through, find her in almshouse records, things of that sort. Right. But it takes a tremendous amount of work and not by any means all of it done on my part. Uh, but with this group, and that's one of the things I liked about this project, too, because I like working with other people and with other scholars. A collaboration, and to have students involved as yes, well. Yes, so, yes. Such a great project. Um, so you describe Philadelphia in the 1790s as one of the most multicultural places of its time, um, a city that had a thriving community of immigrants, of free African-Americans. And one interesting fact you address in your work is that Philadelphia at that time was a place where slaves, more than anywhere else, were able to obtain their freedom more quickly than even the emancipation laws yes. required. And so for people who don't know that particular history, which I don't think I was ever taught in school, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about that, about Philadelphia at that time, and then speak particularly to the strength of the African-American free community there? Sure, thanks. Um, well, Philadelphia is founded by the Quakers, uh, 1683, 82, somewhere around there. So it's been 100 years Jeez. since its uh, founding. But the Quakers are a very, were, and were still by the late 18th century, very radical Christian group, emphasized equality, equality between men and women. Uh, they came to understand equality between black and whites and start to take a position on that as well. And they were really the ones who formed the first abolition societies in America. And it was all centered around Philadelphia. So the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, founded by the Quakers in 1770s, still ongoing by the 1790s, uh, is pushing very hard to try and end slavery in their that's state. That's the heart of it then. Even yes. the white community that's working yes. towards this. Yes. Okay, so there Originally. were some allies then. For, yes, okay. there were. And there were people we can admire. If we're white people looking for white people in the past, we can admire. Not that, not that we shouldn't identify the black people as well, but here are people we can admire for their foresight, their insight, their activism, uh, and for also their accomplishments. What happens is in 1780 and then in 1788, uh, they were able to pass two laws through the state legislature of Pennsylvania, which are the first laws in the Western world that begin to end slavery. Uh, and uh, it doesn't end slavery immediately. It says we're going to phase slavery out. Um, you know, it would have been better if it ended immediately, but, in, but that's not the position they could get people to buy into. So we have this core of idealists coming out of religious background uh, who are pushing for this and uh, passing these laws. Um, and at the same time, of course, the American Revolution is there. Lots of African-Americans fight in the American Revolution, many more than people are aware of. Some of them volunteer, others run away to join up uh, with the military, one side or another. 
Often they'll fight on the British side, actually, because the British will promise them freedom. Uh, the Americans, it takes them quite a while to get to that position, to promise them freedoms to fight. So one of the major ways that they gain their freedom is by uh, being in the Continental Army for the entire seven years. Once you're mustered out, almost always you get your freedom at that case. So you've really physically put your life on the line for it. And a lot of people have died to try and gain their freedom. But that's one of the major ways. A second way is just running away during the, the turmoil of all of this. Uh, and uh, a lot of uh, African Americans do that as well. They're in this border state area of Pennsylvania, if you can picture on a map, it's just north of Virginia and Maryland, which are two, uh, uh, no, is that right? No, Maryland, Delaware, two major um, slave-holding areas, you know, where, where there's many more slaves than there are in Pennsylvania. But once Pennsylvania then starts to take this stand against slavery, African-Americans immediately know this. Uh, and so you get lots of African-Americans. If you're going to run from Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, where you're going to head to, you're going to go to Pennsylvania, you're going to go to Philadelphia. And so it becomes this centerpiece. And that's where African-Americans then become the center of this black community, new black community, free black community that they found. Uh, and that's part of this whole story, too that people like Absalom Jones, Richard Allen are leaders of this society that found the first African churches in America. They found mutual aid societies. Uh, they begin to hide other runaways. So they're really an active community. They're, they're a safe active. harbor. And then Indeed they are. also helping facilitate other people to maybe purchase their freedom too? Is that an option? Yes. Uh, they, if, if, yes, they do help that. They can loan them money and things of that sort. Of course, you have to have a willing master to, to be willing to do that. And so, uh, you know, that's a, a little bit iffy often, but yes, they do that as well. So Ona would have been well aware of this community and she's living in Philadelphia in, in the house with the president and the first lady. Absolutely. And would have known. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just right outside their door. The 10% of the population, I guess, in the 1793, 94, 10% of Philadelphians are black. So you can't walk outside your house uh, without running into both black people and white people and ethnic people. So she would have been very aware of this when you go down to the marketplace. Well, 10%, probably more, because you've got lots of your slaves going down to do your shopping. So you can't be on the streets, and it's a small city. Uh, it's physically much smaller than Bozeman, and it's a walking city. So you're always going to be involved with bumping into other kinds of people, uh, black people and white people alike. So remind me, did Ona live in the house with the Washingtons, or did she live in another house with other enslaved? She's with the Washingtons' household, but she, like the other eight slaves that are there, are living out sort of in the stables, uh, and there's okay. a, a special area that they've built for them. Uh, because slaves would not typically live in a, a white person's house, okay. but... Um, uh, so that they will always be on call. The Washingtons want them to be there, but very modest quarters. Okay. Uh, it's been They've been reconstructed today. Physically, you can see what it looks like. And so you have nine people really crammed into uh, a room much smaller than the one we're sitting in. Wow. wow. <laughs> That's your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you want to ask the question about George Washington, Nancy? Do you think that's it? I was going to wait until okay. we go through your next question. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. So one thing that struck me struck me when I was reading that book that you referenced just a few minutes ago, mm. Never Caught, and this was a book that was written by a woman whose name is Erica Armstrong Dunbar, and it came out just a couple of years ago in 20, um, 2018, mm -hmm. and it was called Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge. Yes. And so I read that a few years, a, a year or so ago, and it was so, it, it was such a good book because it did a, such a good job of... Uh, telling the story about Ona Judge and her um, escape. But one thing that struck me that, that when I was reading your essay about this kind of um, came back to me was that um, Martha Washington, when asked what Ona was wearing when she escaped, couldn't describe Ona Judge's dress. And 
you know, she saw, Martha Washington's, Washington saw Ona Judge every single day, multiple times a day. Yes. Ona Judge probably only had one or two dresses. Right. Is yes. that correct? Probably. I think that's probably true. And so, um, so it was so interesting to me that Martha could not describe what Ona Judge was wearing. And that just shows that invisibility. And you talk yes. a little bit about that. And, and you say that wealth often blinds people to the inequities of other people. And so um, I just wanted you to speak a little bit to that and speak to that idea of this inv- invisibility. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, because it does tell us when she can't identify the clothing that she's wearing, it tells us a great deal about Martha. Um, and who does she see and who doesn't she see? Well, she's just not going to see her slaves. And probably the same thing, they have some indentured servants, and they also a few hired white servants uh, when they're living in Philadelphia as well. But, you know, she's been living with 300 slaves for her entire life. She's born into an enormously wealthy uh, family built on slavery. So she's just used to slaves being there, her beck and call, and she would probably be uh, really angry if they didn't anticipate what her beck and call was, too. But, you know, I think about the only time she would notice a slave, and that's probably true of lots of white people here at the time who are slave owners, is if uh, they've created some problem, if they've done something that she doesn't like. Uh, maybe even as little as just spilling the coffee pot or something. But otherwise, you just, I think most of these people just don't see these people, even though they're right there in their life every day, sitting in the same room with them. And apparently she and Martha sit together and sew quite a bit. Uh, and so it's not like she did not know that this person's there, but she has this way. And, and it, it gives us a little insight, too, in the slave owner's world, has this way of just not being able to see them. You know, that references our own times, too, and in part that's what I was trying to get at in this, uh, in this uh, essay, and that was, uh, you know, who do we see? And I'm blind to lots of people I know, and unless you kind of realize that and go, well, how can I take those blinders off? Um, and, uh, you know, can I struggle to do that? Maybe I can see some people, some things, uh, that, that, you know, otherwise I'm just blinded too. Maybe we'll get to that when we talk uh, about Black Lives Matter movement yeah. because I believe that's what's happening today in some ways uh, and uh, that some white people have been able to drop some of their blinders uh, because of some of the obvious violence that's there. Right. You have that quote you put in the beginning from, is it William Blake, mm-hmm. the, the mind-forged manacles, which I think is sort of the same yes. way we talk about blinders, this almost manacles in our mind that keep us from not only seeing but understanding. So yes. when you talk about how they are so shocked that she would have run off, why would she do that? And George is writing letters about how ungrateful and angry. And then even when um, she is found up north and she is giving an interview to an abolitionist magazine, they're saying, we we still want you to come back. And she said, only if you invite me back as a free person. And they will not free her until after they're dead. Yes. I mean, this to me is such an interesting, they can't get past it through their whole lives. Yes. No, that she I, left them. Yes, and uh, that George is uh, gets extremely angry uh, and says that at some point, I, I'm not going to negotiate with this person anymore. Uh, and, you know, that ultimately he's thinking he will just have somebody else go out and snatch her, put her on her boat forcefully and bring her back. Uh, but that, yes, they can't get to that. They can't conceive that she wants to be free. And she says that many times to them, you know, through these intermediaries that he keeps sending up. And one of them reports on those intermediaries is says, uh, well, all she wanted to be is free. <laughs> you know? and, and they cannot come to... Uh, an understanding of that. It, uh, talk about mind-forged manacles. Which is, I, I love that you put that in because it, it seems like either they can't get over the idea that she is property of theirs, which is so 
disconcerting to think about anyone thinking that way, much less our, our first president. But then also the idea that they can't imagine what she would do with her freedom and why it's so valuable to her. Yes. That they they can't even have that empathy to put themselves in someone's place. And that's another thing we're really talking about with all these relevant issues today. Indeed. And I think also along those lines that maybe if you're George Washington and you admit that one of your slaves would just rather be free than a slave, that maybe that has to turn your world topsy-turvy in some ways. Maybe you do have to admit, well, maybe this is a person or at least a being that has, you know, his or her own will. So maybe that's part of the being blocked. The the fact that he couldn't let go of that, he wanted to stay in the mind-forged manacles, the mindset. It did not want to challenge it. It tells us something maybe uncomfortable for us to know about this man. Yes, I think so. And not just about him, but also about so many people at the time who were slave owners or non-slave owners who are still accepting the same kind of idea. Well, black people should be slaves. Even in the face of other people who are fighting to free them. Yes, I know. Right. (laughs) So interesting. So I don't want to leave George quite yet. Um, So you also mentioned that it was illegal in Philadelphia to keep slaves for longer than six months. Otherwise, you had to begin this emancipation process. But somehow, George and Martha found a way around this. They were able to maintain their household of indentured servants and bonded people during their whole time in Philadelphia. So how is it they managed to evade this law, shall we say? Um, Well, uh, George is very straightforward in his letter, although it's a secret letter. Nobody else, now we can read it because, you know, all of his papers have been saved. But he writes to his um, secretary, um, Tobias Lear, I think his name, and it very forthrightly says, uh, what we have to do as they're moving to Philadelphia is rotate our slaves around before every six-month period. Once again, the law is if you bring in a slave from outside, which is what George is doing from Washington, and you keep them for more than six months in Pennsylvania, then they can claim their freedom. So on a technicality, yes. he could yes. not trigger the law. That's correct. And so if he did that, uh, and we just keep shuffling around, and that is what they do with all nine of their slaves. Sometimes they'll just shuffle them right over to Trenton, for example, which is not very far away. Just go over to New Jersey for a day. Probably Martha looks like, probably takes Ona over for a day uh, and before the six months are up. And so he is very straightforwardly telling his uh, you know, telling Tobias to do it. Martha is certainly cooperating with it too. And he also says, I don't want the public to know about it. Mm. So it's bad a, press. So it's a very, yes, yeah. it's bad press. And, you know, it's a guy who, uh, like all presidents, are really uh, aware of their reputation, and especially in this case. So he's very forthright about it, but not in public. This, again, is a letter between he and his secretary. At the time, nobody. Uh, would have seen it. Right. Right. Wow. Fascinating. Know- knowingly um, devising a plan yes. so that this law wouldn't be triggered in, and, and you're the main executive of yes. this brand uh-huh. new. Yeah, yeah and, you're, right. and your job you're is to enforce to the laws, right. and, and yet you found a way to evade. It's, it's fascinating because it surely made him uncomfortable. He didn't want the public to know because even though he wasn't technically breaking the law, it right. would have been viewed differently maybe by all the other citizens in yes. Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Fascinating. And we'll, yeah. we'll come back a little bit to that. But um, we want to also get on to the pandemic, because when Ona left in 1793, she was, what, 20 years old? Oh, oh, that's when she left. Okay, Mm -hmm. but we had sort of talked about what a walk, right, in 1793. She was around early Mm -hmm. 20s or something like that. We also had um, a major event happen in 1793 in Philadelphia. Right, right. So your work addresses the yellow fever pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, that broke out in, in 1793 um, after a ship, the Hanky, docked in the harbor and its crew came ashore and visited a brothel. <laughs> as, as they do. As, as they, Not too unusual for sailors, yes. <laughs> and so um, people, of course, didn't know at that time how yellow fever was transmitted. They didn't understand right. it was transmitted 
via mosquitoes, they thought it was transmitted um, through different different methods, right. different ways. Um, can you discuss the reaction of the city's inhabitants to the yellow fever pandemic? Sure. Okay. Uh, first, let me just give a slight back. What, what happened in 1793, it, within three-month period, 10% of Philadelphians died. Wow, it's that's just, a huge amount. Oh, especially yeah. now we're living in our right. pandemic times, and I don't know, we're flirting with 1% maybe. I mean, we can't quite tell the numbers, but much, you, you much fewer. Yeah, you don't really... You don't really um, realize those numbers until you're actually living in a pandemic. Yes, and that's look correct. At those numbers every I know. day, yes. and then you're like ten percent. Oh yes, know? that's huge. It's huge. It's I, huge. It is yeah. indeed. Even though I started this pandemic quite a while ago, I'm looking at it through different eyes now yeah. too, <laughs> without the mind forge manacles sometimes. Yes, right. <laughs> exactly. But you know, so ten percent of the people die within three months. Now, what's Ooh. even worse than that is it comes back for the next dozen years every fall. Mm-hmm. And it either hits Philadelphia or New York or Charleston or Boston. Every major city in North America gets afflicted by this. Uh, every one of them, you get huge numbers uh, of deaths in these areas. So uh, I don't know if we can find that comforting that we're not as in bad a shape as them. I, I don't find it too comforting, I no, must say. No. But on the other hand... They had to be patient. I mean, yeah. you they didn't have too much choice. But uh, in terms of, you know, I get antsy that we're in quarantine, semi-quarantine for five months. These people are there for 15 years. And so maybe we can admire their uh, uh, control over themselves in some ways or their ability to respond to this. What I'd also like to talk about, though, are the people, especially since we're talking about African-Americans and slaves and free black community, The people who really save the city of Philadelphia uh, is the African-American community, uh, both slaves and the free community. Um, What happens is that a lot of people who are wealthy, once again, we bring class up, uh, run away, get out of the city. We see something that happened like that in New York City earlier on. There's lots of parallels that we're seeing in our own times, too. So if you're relatively wealthy, you leave the city when the pandemic breaks out. So they don't know necessarily what causes it, but they know that leaving it is is, you're less likely to catch it. You're you're thinking that, uh, yes, I'll get away from it, basically. Now, uh, so lots of them leave the city. So you've got most of the people who are left behind are middle class, lower class, um, African-Americans and people like that. Um, and the government breaks down entirely. The federal government is there. Everybody leaves. George Washington leaves. Thomas Jefferson. Everybody leaves. The state government is there. Everybody leaves. The only official that stays around is the mayor of Philadelphia, much to his credit. Uh, and he organizes various citizens' committees, puts forward a call for help from everyday citizens saying, look, we don't have any government. We need... It's uh, just us. We need us. Yes, we got to step forward. And the people who step forward are the African-American communities, are the African-Americans. And um, they go out and do the details of everyday life. They walk house to house to find people who are sick and uh, provide them with water. That's the main thing that will keep people alive. If you keep hydrated, you get a good chance to survive. But they also pick up uh, dead people in the streets or dead people, you know, in their houses. They uh, they take them off and you have to bury in mass graves because so many people are dying. Mm -hmm. Uh, They also, and Anne Seville is a a young woman who I have turned up some information about, African-American woman at the time, organizes the hospital at the time, the new hospital they set up. Oh, wow. And uh, that becomes a place of refuge, not just a death house early on. Uh, and she's able to organize uh, both supplies and nurses and, and uh, all kinds of uh, medical equipment that you need so that many people's lives are saved through that, too. Wow. Uh, and so, in, you know, in many ways, they, they saved our first capital, if you will. In and the, the orphans that were left behind in some of these yes. cases. Right. Really sad Nobody stories. Nobody there. No, to... that's right. They would have these heartrending stories about coming up on these orphans who, who don't understand their, their parents are dead right next to them. You know, and it's just, I know. Again, from our perspective today, that's so horrible. From our perspective today, it's so horrible where we are right now, too. And indeed it is. But it's a different level of horror uh, at that point than it is now. 
I find it hard imagining at this time, except if I go back to the very beginning of the COVID epidemic, when we didn't really know how it was transmitted, but we knew how quickly it was spreading all over the world. And there was this incredible fear. Nobody knew if you could get it just from even touching your groceries and your grocery bag or what you had to do. And, And to have to come up with ideas of how to keep yourself safe, not right. knowing what the cause is. Yes. Very brave people, the ones who all stayed and were, and the mayor recognized these folks, yes. right? Yes, after. he does. Yeah. Yes, he does give them an official thank you and commendation and even more than that celebration for lots of the African-Americans. Unfortunately, it's not true for everybody there. There's a, uh, a printer who, who writes a book that becomes very popular, Instant history, basically, it's the first instant history, I think, of an event. And uh, he condemns African Americans, saying, no, they were just stealing from blah, 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 and, uh, and all the, you know, and they were not, they were charging too high of a wage. Blah, blah. So, but it really is based on his racism, it's pretty clear. He just but started it, an alternative narrative yes, about motivations exactly. for the, That's okay. so that they wouldn't get all right. these accolades. So they wouldn't get and, these kind of accolades, yes. But they did push back. I was, that was interesting to see that mm. they did push back on that yes. and try to um, put out the truth, the, the real narrative, but um, right. So the fake news yeah. begins early. Yes, they do. Uh, they are able to produce this pamphlet, the first uh, really published pamphlet by any African-Americans at the time themselves, written and published by themselves. Uh, in which they are speaking back to these accusations and are outlining in great detail uh, what happened uh, during all of this, what monies were made, what monies weren't made, things of that. I mean, they really have the records presenting it well. The other thing that they also write about there, and because it is the first publication by African Americans, is a write about slavery. And they note how much slaves hate to be slaves. Uh, They're pretty bold in saying that straightforwardly. And again, maybe that circles back around to George Washington, who can't conceive that his slave wanted to be free. And, you know, they are at least articulating in a pamphlet that does get widely read, we don't want to be slaves. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, we might not think that's a huge step forward, but it is indeed the kind of challenge, fundamental notion on the part of lots of white people who are saying, no, you're, you know, you don't even they're want to be free. They're happy mm-hmm. doing what they're doing, exactly. wouldn't know what to do with freedom. It's, um, it's hard to get your mind around that now. Yes. Before we leave that, I, I feel like you, you drew a lot of very interesting parallels with today's mm-hmm. uh, COVID pandemic and um, some relating to the misconceptions we had early on, cause of transmission and things like that, but how it also disproportionately affected certain communities. You've mentioned a bit about socioeconomic status and how if you were wealthy and you had a place to go somewhere else, you went. Um, But also even more specifically within the city, based on where you worked or your your geographic place of residence um, also affected your, and there were misconceptions about race. So talk a little bit about some of those um, those ways that it, it disproportionately affected people and, and, again, any other parallels you see with our current health crisis. Um, probably the best uh, estimate at this point is about two-thirds of the people who die are from lower classes, um, lower class people now. Um, and um, lots and lots of African Americans die. The, one of the things that throughout the mapping enabled me to do uh, was to map actually um, who dies at the highest levels in the city. You can map it street by street. Wow. Um, and actually this map I'm really proud of because lots of medical textbooks have since picked, picked it up That's to talk great. about it. That's remarkable. Yeah. So that I, can, I could map that and what, what you find is, and when you think it through, it's not too much of a surprise, the mosquitoes who are carrying yellow fever only fly about 100 yards in their lifetime. Delaware River, up and down the Delaware River are where the ships are landing, unloading these mosquitoes. And it's up and down that Delaware River where the mosquitoes flourish too. Uh, And so if you live near the river, 
your neighborhood, maybe two-thirds of the people are going to die in your neighborhood, in your streets, if they haven't been able to, to leave the city in advance. And is that the prime place people want to live? By the it river? is indeed, yes. Okay. Uh, it Businesses is early on, or, yeah. yes. But still, again, if you're wealthy and you're living down there, you leave immediately. Um, so what you end up having are brothels, uh, uh, prostitutes, sailors, uh, laboring class people. Those are the people who are mostly up and down and being killed uh, in this area. African-Americans are living in a little five blocks from the Delaware for a variety of reasons, but most African-Americans are living there. If you're five blocks away, I found from my mapping, you probably, your neighborhood maybe will only leave, uh, lose five or 10% of its population. Stark difference because Stark. the mosquitoes aren't flying out there. So it, unless you go in over to the Delaware, now you don't really know this in advance, but unless you go over to the Delaware, you probably are not going to die. What's happening here with African-Americans who step forward uh, to take care of people is they're traveling all up and down the city, and they're especially going over to help people who are sick near the Delaware River and getting stung by mosquitoes. So they end up dying uh, in some quite large numbers, much more so than one would predict, given just where they live and work in a general basis. You know, it's admirable, though. It once again shows us, especially this guy, Matthew Carey, right. who is saying, no, these people aren't doing this. Well, no, they are. They're putting their Absolutely. life on the line as yes. our health care workers are Exactly. Today. They're just like health care workers today in lots of ways, and they're just as admirable mm -hmm. uh, as health care workers today. Right. But they didn't, um, the black community then, uh, in future outbreaks of the epi epidemic, they weren't as... Um, yes. ready to go and help because of, of that um, book that came out, that narrative that came out. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, many of them are discouraged, yeah. understandably, understandably so. Yeah. Yes, if you yeah. put your life on the line or if, you know, your husband or wife has maybe even died from this. I mean, you're not going to be... <laughs> it didn't advance their cause. Yeah, it didn't so have I the did. results of creating bonds and opportunities yes. with... The, yeah. Oh, and so, yes. And, and that is a that lesson. Makes, you're exactly right. That they don't come out as much to assist. Uh, and therefore, probably the mortality of people goes up right. because you just don't have people willing to go into people's houses mm. and help them out when you don't know how the virus is passed once again. Right. Uh, you right. know, you're really putting yourself out there. Right. Yeah. So I do want to come back really quick to Ona Judge and. And, you know, um, if people haven't read the book or ha don't know the history of her, what happened to Ona Judge? Well, she, uh, about two years after, you know, this hypothetical walk that I've picked mm -hmm. in 1794, uh, 1796, um, she runs away. They're living in Philadelphia. Uh, she describes it. And one of the reasons we, uh, we have some information about her is because later she does get uh, interviewed a couple of times by abolitionists newspaper people in the north and so she describes uh, what, what happened here and essentially she says she makes it sound matter of fact they're sitting down to dinner that is the Washington family Saturday night she just walks out the front door <laughs> now she's already made arrangements with people in the black community she also says I've sent my my things ahead or somebody had obviously helped pick up whatever clothing and other items she did have. So it was planned and people kept a secret. It was indeed, yes, which is quite amazing uh, because you're really risking your life if you're going to protect a runaway slave, especially a runaway slave of the most powerful man in America at the time. And it's, it's really speaks well for the African-American community who were participating in shielding uh, this young woman. Uh, and apparently she spends a couple of weeks in Philadelphia, it sounds like, uh, and then is able to get on a ship that takes her out. Most likely, it's kind of sounds like from a little of the information I've been able to gather, probably there's a black mariner who's helped her or maybe a, uh, uh, you know, somebody who's working down the docks, lots of African Americans working there, probably has helped her get on. Who hit her, we don't know. And, and in fact, I sat, uh, set out for about two months to try and see if I can find out this. But they hit it so well because they had to at the time. Yeah. Uh, and so while I was disappointed, I understood why I wasn't going to be able to turn this up. And in many ways, though, maybe it's better to think about the entire African-American community there is helping. And so even if there's two people who hide her, let's say, 
lots of people got to know about right. it, you yeah. know, because yeah, this right. is a small town. Yes. Uh, and so, and can, no one was ever brought up on charges of helping her escape either. No, so that secret no. was well kept. Absolutely. Forever. Yes. Yeah. And she even says in her first interview up in uh, uh, to the abolitionist paper, I'm not going to tell who helped me. And even 30 years later, she's interviewed again, and she says the same thing. I'm, I'm still not going to tell because I don't know if anybody is still around uh, who might be punished for this. So what did she do with her freedom when she got to the North? Um, she became a seamstress. I mean, there's not too many jobs for women. That's part of the inequalities, too, that I want to talk about in, in this project. She becomes a seamstress. She's pretty poor because seamstresses don't make much money. I think she works as a... Uh, uh, a domestic for a little while. But she does meet a man and get married, um, sailor. Um, we don't really know, is this a love match or, or things of that sort, but that's true. We don't know that about lots of people's marriages. We don't know that about George, whether it's a love match. We just uh, don't know those kinds of things, even about people like George and Martha, who we have so much. But they do, uh, they are married for quite a long time. Uh, she has three children. Um, I think maybe 15 years they're able to live together. I think he's a sailor going back and forth out of this port uh, up in New Hampshire, I believe it is. And she uh, lives in this uh, small town, that small community. There is an African-American community there. It's also a lot of runaway slaves who founded this. Uh, and so she's able to find at least a community of other uh, African-Americans who are up there too. Happy life, uh, you know, we don't know uh, for sure. Uh, probably happier than being a slave, though. Yeah. We do know that. Yeah. And certainly, uh, given what she told George Washington, all I want is my freedom. Yeah. Do we know how long she lived? I think it's 1845 or something like that. She's born about 1773, so just quick math there. What have we got? 60 some years, yeah. something it's like that. a good age. Yes, for yes. yes. Yeah. it was not a short life. Yeah. So she survived the pandemic, survived yeah. slavery, right. and her escape. That's yes, and survived, you know, was able to survive. George keeps sending people up the train to grab her, too. I mean. <laughs> and that's what's so amazing to me is that she was able to keep her freedom. Yes. until the end of her life, and yes. that no one did come up and grab her. They tried yes, a they few tried. times they and, and were unsuccessful, and right. so she she outwitted them. Yes, yeah, <laughs> she did. I know. And that's pretty good for a girl who's yeah. 18, 20, when she, you know, that she's bold enough to run away yeah. from the most powerful man in America and then to maintain her freedom. Yeah. It's sort of a beautiful American underdog story. Right. Yes, it so is. We kind of like. It's yeah. successful, that's for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, it's given about you're at, at the bottom of the totem pole socially, economically, and then right. you're able to uh, claim your freedom anyway. Right, your yeah. independence. So I want to, as we're wrapping up today, I just wanted to talk a little bit about bring this to the present and talk about your life's work, Billy, and how that aligns with Black Lives Matter. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, I think a lot of this speaks directly to the kinds of issues that the Black Lives Matter movement has been raising for a long time now. Now, you know, lots of white people have become aware of it over the last few months. But uh, Black Lives Matter, of course, have been around for a long time, arguing that Black Lives Matter, essentially. Uh, it's certainly a, a position I've agreed with. Um, I've supported the Black Student Union in their organizing of our, our local marches here that, that went off so well and things of that sort. So in personal political terms, too, that is exactly the kinds of things that, that I find to be extremely admirable, especially from these young students uh, undergraduates here who really were major organizers of what became, I think, one of the you know the biggest marches probably in Bozeman history. Maybe I'm wrong. Yes, on that definitely. One, no, I, think I think they that's are. True. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, a very unified march, and also reaching out to white people in doing that. And that's one of the most important things, it seems to me, that the Black Lives Matter m- movement now has done. That a number of white people have taken off their blinders or at least uh, have responded to the call to take off their blinders. And when you see, you know, polls of how people's, uh, white people's uh, racial views have changed over the last three months, uh, often there's a lot of uh, optimism in there about what might be able to happen in the future uh, and whether this can get changed. But I also see having studied runaway slaves, written a book and lots of articles about runaway slaves, one of the reasons I was drawn to own a judge too, is that 
people are taking power into their own hands in so much as they can. At the same time, working together as a community, though, uh, to support one another, uh, whether it's in the yellow fever epidemic, working across black and white lines, too, in that case, or whether it's in helping other people gain and uh, maintain their freedoms. So that, you know, as early as the 18th century, and certainly even before that, you do have lots of slaves and free black people who are supporting one another, uh, as well as being able to carve out their own lives, just like only judge does. And you had white people who were willing to work alongside them, exactly. which is which is again what we're starting to see with Black Lives Matter. It yes. definitely feels as if understanding our identities today and understanding why some people say they're tired. It's been centuries yes. of trying to get yes. full freedom and equality and access to voting and, and all of that. Um, the history really supports Indeed. that understanding that Black Lives Matter has right. brought. And from a scholar such as yourself, I think that's a wonderful thing for everybody to take away, just understanding our, the, our history of our nation better hmm. and in a more personal way. Yes. Yeah, through yes, people. Indeed. Right. Um, well, I regret to say our time is up. Um, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Billy You're Smith, welcome. for talking with us today. Um, your research is fascinating. There's also wonderful visuals. I think tying it to mapping and geography is um, just another element that makes it more real and visceral to experience that way. Um, so join us again on The Dirt on the Past to hear more engaging interviews with historians, archaeologists, and anthropologists discussing why it matters today. And I just wanted to say, if you want to um, learn more about this or read um, Billy's book, the title, the full t- title is Ship of Death, The Voyage That Changed the Atlantic World. And that um, that was part of the story. But, um, yes. Billy, are you working on anything else? <laughs> are, you, are you working on another book um, that, that will kind of tie in this mapping and this, the you know, mapping this, these inequal- inequalities? Right. Um, what my next project is is to return to runaway slaves, actually. Okay. I still have lots of stories to tell uh, and also lots of data to mine. So as I retire here, I see that in the next few years is probably the place I'll move for probably another book or at least some articles to, to deal with that. You know? okay. And right. thank so, you for mentioning my so book. So glad yeah. you're telling these <laughs> stories of these runaway slaves. It's wonderful. And thank you very much for inviting me, and I really oh, enjoyed you. being here with you. Yeah, it was so great to have you here. So so thanks so much, and until next time, keep searching out the, the dirt, dirt on, on the, the past. past. <laughs> You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>